1 Corinthians 14. We're going to start with verse 6. I read the whole chapter last week to sort of give us uh, some context. But uh, what I want to do this week is I want to go back and I want to cover um, the verses that we've already spoken about. And then we'll look at the ones that we're going to talk about tonight so that we can catch back up. I'm not going to obviously reteach over those, um, but I do have, a, I have, a, I guess they call them playlists. You can take your videos or other people's videos on YouTube. You can create a playlist and then, you know, you can just listen to the whole playlist. You can share the playlist with other people, but <coughs> the playlist, uh, there's one for first Corinthians. It has all of the first Corinthians Bible studies. And then there's one that's just called spiritual gifts. Um, and so if you want to catch up, it's an easy way to, you know, go back and find those. And the other thing is we podcast. So, um, go to Spotify, uh, go to Apple or wherever you would subscribe to a podcast and you'll get all of this content and you can just say, Oh, I was at that church service. So I'm going to skip over that one, you know, but that way you can, you know, it just comes to your device and then you just have it and you can stay caught up, right? So that way I don't have to go back over and reinvent the wheel every week. All right. So let's pray and then let's jump into this, uh, this scripture tonight. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to teach your word. Uh, it just feels right. It's what you made me to do. And, and I enjoy teaching to many or to few and uh, I thank you that your word has been preserved all of these hundreds and even thousands of years and uh, that we're able to receive it and even apply it um, long after it was written. We know, Holy Spirit, that you were the one that inspired it and you're the one that keeps it alive for us. And uh, so I pray you'll open our minds and our hearts and I pray that you will make this word real for us right now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... <clears throat> We've been in this series, uh, beginning in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, on spiritual gifts. And this is the most extensive discussion on spiritual gifts in Scripture. There are a couple of other passages that briefly uh, teach about them, and they are both Paul's uh, writing as well. There is a passage in Romans chapter 12, verses 5 through 8, I believe, and or 6 through 8. This is a very, very brief treatment. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, there's a very, very brief uh, discussion. And there, there are different types of spiritual gifts. And again, I'll commend the previous uh, studies to you. If you go to the, the first um, 1 Corinthians 12 Bible study, then you can catch up on that. But the Apostle Paul had uh, lots of challenges with his church in Corinth. And uh, they were very competitive with one another and they were dividing into different groups. And, uh, you know, one of the things that they were divided over was spiritual gifts. And that seems rather ironic, doesn't it? That, you know, it seems spiritual gifts. That's it's they're for the congregation. They should be the expression of the body of Christ. They should naturally bring us together in unity. And in fact, uh, as we discovered in uh, chapter 12, the Apostle Paul said, hey, you are the body of Christ and we're individually members of it. And all the members don't do the same thing. Your hands and your feet and your eyes and your ears, and your nose don't do the same thing. So, you know, let the Lord use you where you are, but realize that we are all one in Christ. 
So we don't want uniformity, right? Where we're all, you know, wearing the same outfits and cutting our hair the same and talking the same and acting the same. It seems in our country today, there is an increasing push for uniformity in all areas. You're not allowed to think uh, in any other way and you're not allowed to tell jokes and all of these sorts of things. The beauty of the body of Christ is we can all be like Jesus and still be unique, each unique, very different, right? I like to think of it to, to divide it down even further um, to the cells in your body, right? I mean, you have literally billions, probably trillions of cells in your body. And there are, you know, there are different kinds of cells also. There's bone cells and blood cells and muscle cells and nerve cells. So there are different kinds of cells and they're located in different places in your body and they're in different members of your body. So see, even two people that have the same gifts are not the same. The beauty of your body though is every single cell in your body, billions and billions of cells, all have the exact same DNA. The code that describes you physically is in every cell. That's Jesus in every one of us, right? The DNA of Christ is in every single one of us, even though we're different members, different cells in those members and so forth. So here we are, and uh, the congregation uh, at, at Corinth was disputing over this gift of tongues. And what they were having a problem with uh, is what we have a problem with today with this gift. It is so exotic um, that it has a tendency to divide congregations. Congregations that focus on tongues have a tendency to really almost require uh, people who are quote-unquote spiritual to have the gift or to have the gift to demonstrate that they have the Holy Spirit. And then other congregations that don't want to have anything to do with tongues, don't want to hear it, don't want to talk about it, don't want to believe that it even exists. And there is a, there's really almost a hostility there between these two groups of people. Um, one group of people uh, we would call cessationists. Those are, these are people that believe that the gifts that are spoken of by and large in 1 Corinthians 12 no longer exist. They only happened in the first century. And once the canon of scripture was completed, well, we don't have need for that anymore. We just read the Bible. But the reality is the Bible is uh, inscrutable if you don't have the Holy Spirit helping you to understand it and helping you to interpret it properly. It, it can be just dead history. You know, people drone on and on about the Bible. They misinterpret it. They, they treat it like it's just a law book. And, uh, you know, people get beaten down with the Bible a good bit. And it helps you understand why some people just don't want to have anything to do with the Bible or Christians or any of that. But the reality is, uh, with the Holy Spirit and the gifts that the Spirit gives, it brings this Bible alive, and that's what we want, okay? So they're having a problem with this gift of tongues, and in chapter 14, the Apostle Paul contrasts tongues and prophecy largely, and uh, we started looking at that last week, and we're going to continue this week. The Apostle Paul writes, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophecy, and remember that uh, prophesy. And remember that that refers to preaching the word of God, forth telling, speaking forth the message, not just foretelling the future. 
For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit or in his spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophecies speaks to people for their building up and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you to, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, we covered all those verses last week. Now we continue. Now, brothers or brothers and sisters, I'm reading from ESV. Sisters are included. In fact, uh, it's not uh, patriarchal or any sort of a denigration to, to women. It actually elevates women at a time when they were not included in worship, for example, uh, or I won't say they were excluded, but they were kept in a different part of the room in worship uh, in the synagogue. Um, and the focus was on men and the brothers. Women were included. So when it says brothers, it was inclusive of the women. It's kind of like the way we used to use, most of us in this room are familiar with the way we used to use that language. You know, when we, we would say all men are created equal, we don't mean all the male gender are created equal and women are not. No, we mean all human beings are created equal is what we meant with that. And they were using brothers in the same respect. Okay. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages or many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do, do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Well, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. All right? So, um, in this passage, we have good evidence that the gift of tongues is an unknown language rather than simply a language unknown to the speaker. Now, I know that there's division uh, in, in terms of people's thinking about this. There's the idea that, well, tongues is just God giving you the ability to speak in a known language, but you don't know how to speak in that language. So I walked into Dos Banderas earlier today and I greeted the, the uh, lady that's there. She's been working there for a long time. She was, she was away for a while, but now there's new ownership, and he hired her back. I think she's his manager. Um, wonderful lady, and her name escapes me right now. But I was practicing my Spanish on her. 
you know. And what I really liked about her, I think a lot of Spanish speakers know that gringos like me like to speak Spanish. And if they speak back, then we're not going to have any idea what they're saying, right? What was cool about her is she was kind of, you know, helping me along. She was getting me to practice. She said, well, you can practice, you know. So, uh, yeah, but tongues really is not the Lord giving me the ability to speak Spanish, even though I don't speak Spanish. And I'm not saying that the Lord can't do that, but I'm saying tongues, as the Apostle Paul is describing it here, is an unknown language, a prayer language. Now, perhaps it, you know, represents some language that, you know, uh, was once known, uh, perhaps it's an angelic language, perhaps it's, you know, some form of ancient Hebrew or something. I've heard different people speak in tongues and it doesn't sound the same. I, you know, some people sounds like they're, they're speaking something that's like Asian. Some people it sounds like, you know, they're, they're, they're speaking something that's, uh, uh, that sounds more like Hebrew or something like that. See, as I said last week, and as I think becomes clear, in studying First uh, Corinthians, especially chapter 14, is this is a language that allows the speaker to commune with God without having to think about it, without having to sort through and come up with different words, all right? So we have pretty good evidence, if you were paying attention to the text, that tongues is an unknown language rather than simply a language unknown to the speaker. The purpose of speech is communication between persons, it's also communication within yourself. Like, you know, it helps you to think um, when you learn new words, vocabulary, because that helps you create a new category in your mind that you can put. So think of it as a, as a container and you have all these stray thoughts and you're like, well, but what is that? It's kind of like that. and It's kind of like that. and It's kind of like that. And then you get this word and it becomes a container and you're, oh, that's awesome. It's this, 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 and this is the word. It's, I want, I love words. They're awesome. Okay. But when you try to talk to this ineffably sublime God, you run out of words pretty quick, you know, or you can just get to the place where you just, you don't know what to say. And so, you know, that doesn't mean you have to have the gift of tongues. In fact, this is honestly, this is what songs are really good for. Okay. Uh, you know, you just, you sing and you know what those words are, but you're not having to make the words up. You already know the words and you're able to sing them. Okay. And this is probably why uh, there are people who uh, are, uh, are blessed by say, praying the Lord's prayer. Okay. You know, our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name and so forth. Um, <clears throat> but that's what I think we're referring to uh, with tongues here. So, um, as I believe, if tongues is primarily a prayer language, then it is the expression of a spirit-filled believer toward God as the hearer. God is the hearer. Paul's contention in this passage is that the gift of tongues has no purpose in the community of believers unless there is an interpreter for what is spoken. Now, I don't mean that that, that is not to say that someone could not be praying during a worship service or worshiping and speaking in tongues quietly. I'm talking about me standing up here and suddenly, you know, bursting out in some sort of ecstatic speech. That's really not going to help you. Okay. Now, you know, in smaller groups, if that group is tuned to this sort of gift and they're accustomed to hearing it and someone you know, speaks in a tongue and another one interprets, then according to Paul, that would be uh, appropriate. So 
um, the communication here is between God and the spirit of the believer, or more specifically, between the Holy Spirit and your spirit. That's how you communicate with God. If you're really going to talk to God, it's not just words. Those words are your mind taking the cue from your spirit, right? Because communication with God, communion with God, is spirit to spirit. Think about it this way, capital S, spirit, Holy Spirit, to little s, spirit, your spirit. That's why in order to have a relationship with God, I have to be reborn, spiritually born again. I'm spiritually stillborn. I'm spiritually numb. There's a lot of metaphors we could use here, um, you know, but I, I can't perceive anything spiritually until uh, I am reborn by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, here's a, there's a good passage over in Romans that I think is inferring what happens when someone speaks in tongues. This is Romans 8, 22 through 23. And then I'm going to jump to verses 26 and 27. Romans 8, 22 and 23 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So this inward groaning. Now, verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we ought. Well, we don't, do we? We don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So remember, tongues is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It's a disclosure of the presence of the Spirit, and it is the Spirit working in and through me. It is not me making up words. It's not a a language that I'm just inventing because I don't know what to say. It is the Holy Spirit who is impressing this upon my spirit and communing through me to God, right? Manifestations of the Spirit, all of the different ones that we looked at in uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians 12, have their own purpose, but all, as in their own distinct purposes, but all of them reveal His presence, the the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Manifestations of the Holy Spirit reveal God's will to believers, which is the express purpose of gifts like prophecy, word of knowledge, and word of wisdom. This is also why Paul insists that in the community of believers, tongue speakers ask God for the gift of interpretation so that the congregation may be edified. Um, and that we're not going to be edified unless we know what the, the, the message of the Spirit is. So I've got to emphasize once again, this is not about new revelation. Um, something that we're going to add to the Christian Bible. The Jesus of the four Gospels is the Jesus of the New Testament of the Christian Bible. This is not some other Jesus, some outside Jesus, some new revelation about Jesus. Jesus is God's final revelation uh, to human beings, and this is the Jesus that is defined in the New Testament, right? The Jesus of the four Gospels is that Jesus, 
It's the same Jesus that the Apostle Paul is, is worshiping and teaching about and preaching. Um, this is the same Jesus that we see in the Revelation to John. He's the unique, only begotten Son of the one and only God. Jesus Christ is the final revelation of God to human beings. He continues to speak to believers through the Holy Spirit, making the unchanging truth of the immutable God relevant and understandable to each generation, each community, and each individual. That was a phrase I used to use a lot in our church in the early days, that uh, we want to make the unchanging God relevant to the newest, new generation of people, right? Uh, you know, God doesn't ever change, but God is so vast that you'll never stop learning about him and it will never become old, okay? If it's become, if your faith has become old, you've, you've stopped growing. I'm going to continue to grow in my faith and the Holy Spirit is going to help me do that. He's going to reveal new things about this same Jesus and the same God to me and make it real to me and make it relevant to me. All right. So he says that we need to uh, concentrate on bringing some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. So this is four categories of communication from God to us. And these will come by the Holy Spirit through those who are gifted to bring each type of message. The Bible was written by the Holy Spirit. Um, it was written by Holy Spirit inspired humans. Okay. There is a theory of um, Bible inspiration called mechanical dictation. And in this theory, the, the, uh, person who subscribes to mechanical dictation believes that the writer was just an instrument, kind of like a typewriter, and God is the fingers. And I've heard people say this about things that they've written. You know, oh, the Lord just, you know, the Lord wrote that. No, you wrote that, okay? <laughs> Don't blame God, all right? <laughs> I'm not saying that the Lord didn't inspire you to some degree, but neither do I believe as high, uh, as high an opinion as I have of the Bible as the Word of God, I do not believe in mechanical dictation. I don't believe that the, the, the writer just simply watched their hand. Wow, I'm writing. That's awesome. I'm, that would be like tongues. Okay, but this isn't written in tongues. It's written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, real languages. And they reflect the time periods that they were written in. They reflect the context, right? The geographic and historical context that they were written in. It's, listen, this is God's word, but it's also a human book, right? Now, I'm not degrading it by saying that. I'm saying we need to understand that preaching is God speaking through a personality. If you read these different books, and you read a decent translation that doesn't kind of smooth over the differences, you're going to find that these different authors, they, they were just different, okay? Read the Gospel of John and read Mark. Both talking about Jesus, but they are very, very different. And yet, they both have very similar audiences. John is more, uh, it's more literary. It's more refined, Mark, uh, according to church tradition and history, Mark was written by John Mark, and uh, he was 
<clears throat> he was an assistant to Paul at first, but then he kind of left him behind. And then Paul didn't want to have anything to do with him for a little while. So he became an assistant to Peter. And early church tradition in history says that John Mark wrote down the preaching of Peter. Well, Mark reads like it's, I'm not a Greek scholar, okay? But I have, you know, I've studied Greek. And Greek scholars will tell you that the, the grammar in Mark is terrible, <laughs> which should encourage those of you that don't have great grammar. The word of God has some terrible grammar in it. Isn't that awesome? It is awesome because it's a real human being not only that is preaching this, but another real human being writing it down. There's a word that is used in Mark. Um, it's the Greek word uthus, and it means immediately. And it's used, if I remember correctly, like 48 times in Mark. Jesus is always immediately, immediately, immediately going around doing stuff. It's very action-oriented, okay? And so scholars have said that they think that the, the primary target of Mark would have been Romans, people that were influenced by this, this Roman culture. The Romans were, you know, builders and military people. They're doers, right? While John is more literary, it's, 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 you, you have more of Jesus speaking in John than any of the other three gospels. I mean, he has these long, long uh, discussions, right? And, and sermons. Um, with the exception of the, the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew, um, you find more about Jesus. And, and the focus is on seven different miracles in John. That's how it's, it's outlined. And John was the, the last one written. Same Holy Spirit, same Jesus. Amen? So um, I think that that's, that's what's beautiful about the Word of God. It is indeed a human book, but we need the Holy Spirit who inspired these writers to illumine it to us, okay? And we're all going to come at it from, you know, different angles, but it's the same Word of God, and it is the same Holy Spirit, right? So he says, some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. So uh, revelation is an overarching term that could be applied to the other types of messages God gives by His Spirit. Revelation in its purest form is God disclosing something unknown to the hearers, or perhaps to the speaker as well. Um, it is, seems rather obvious that the Lord was speaking to the prophets and they were writing what he was saying, but they didn't always understand how that was going to work itself out, what that necessarily, the, the, the fullness of, uh, of the implications or meaning of that. Uh, you do and say what the Lord leads you to do and say. Um, so um, the Apostle Paul uh, just as an example of this, uh, of revelation coming through a prophet and not adding to the word of God, right? When Paul returned to Palestine uh, after his third missionary journey, he stopped at the city of Caesarea and a recognized prophet came to him and delivered a message from the Holy Spirit. You want an example of New Testament prophecy? Here it is. While we were staying there, this is, um, by the way, this is Acts 21, 10 and 11. Acts 21, verses 10 and 11. While we were staying there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us and he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet with it and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is the way the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. 
Well, it wasn't identical to that. They didn't bind Paul with his belt. It was a symbol. But indeed, Paul got in sideways with his Jewish brethren who were accusing him of things that he didn't do. I won't go into all the details. He was uh, accosted in the temple, and they were literally trying to rip him apart and kill him. And he was rescued initially by uh, the Roman tribune that was in charge there. And then he was taken to this very same city, Caesarea, and uh, he was imprisoned there in this very city. And he was there for two years. And then he ended up, uh, his case was brought before several officials. Um, and uh, then he ended up appealing to Caesar. Back then, if you were a Roman citizen, which Paul was, and you were arrested for something, you could appeal all the way to Caesar. Just like technically, you could appeal any case that you were dealing with, uh, and you could continue to try to appeal it to the Supreme Court, right? This is the idea there. Um, well, exactly what this prophet said happened. The Apostle Paul was taken by the Gentiles. Ultimately, he was taken to Rome. Uh, he was, even while he was under arrest, it was just house arrest. He was allowed to teach and preach freely, and people came and, and went from that house. But eventually, he was executed under uh, the Emperor Nero, who was the, the uh, political power of the time. Um, knowledge. A message of knowledge makes hearers aware and able to understand what is factual, actual, real, and or true. Um, so um, oftentimes, I don't watch Christian TV anymore, but years and years ago, I mean, uh, when I had a regular television with, you know, regular channels and so forth, I would periodically tune in to, and I don't know if they still do this, okay, but I would periodically turn into, tune into uh, CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network, which may be the best of them, uh, TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and on both of those networks, there were uh, men and or women who knew they were talking to a TV audience, and they would say, you know, uh, I believe that, you know, I'm, or I'm sensing that, or, you know, the Lord says that there's somebody out there with this or that affliction or disease or sickness, and the Lord is healing you right now. Okay, um, that's kind of like fortune telling almost. And I'm not saying that that, that couldn't be, you know, a, a, a word of knowledge that the Lord is giving that person. But when you have an audience of many thousands of people and you say, yes, somebody out there has a back problem right now. Okay, well, probably, you know, a third of them do, right? Now, you know, the Lord is healing you right now. Well, if, if the person receives that, and the Holy, the Holy Spirit is saying that, and then they are healed, then that's validation uh, of the prophecy. But knowledge is, a word of knowledge is not just that. It's not some sort of fortune telling, okay? Um, w. w. Harold Mayer in the Expositor's Bible Commentary pairs knowledge with teaching as, quote, natural tools of communication. Um, so the Holy Spirit can inspire and illuminate and give you an understanding into things that you didn't have an understanding. It's not new knowledge, right? It's not necessarily like Revelation revealing something that is hidden. You just may not have understood that before, and the Holy Spirit helps you to understand it. That's knowledge, right? Prophecy. Mayor, the same commentator, 
pairs prophecy with revelation as supernatural gifts. Barclay translate the word, translates the word prophecy as forth-telling. I've been saying that in here. As we observed previously, prophecy is speaking a message from God. Here's a good definition by Jeremiah the prophet as he answers a false prophet who had been speaking a message of false hope to people who desperately needed to repent. Now, I want you to consider this when you listen to the prophets of our day, because by and large, they're just speaking positive messages that people want to hear. They're throwing that out there with the hopes that people are going to grab a hold of that positive and put their faith in it, and that's going to make it happen. I don't believe that's prophecy, all right? Listen to this example. This is Jeremiah 28, verses 6 through 9. Jeremiah 28, verses 6 through 9. And Jeremiah the prophet said, and again, this is, this is a false prophet. He had, he had previously said that the vessels that had been stolen from the temple by the Babylonians would be brought back within, I think, like two years is what he said. And Jeremiah the prophet said, amen. May the Lord do, do so. <clears throat> right? And then he says, <clears throat> he says, revelation, knowledge, prophecy, and teaching. <clears throat> so at least half of what I do as a pastor is teaching. That's what I'm trying to do with you now. And I'm trying to help you understand what God has said and done in the Bible and to teach you how to apply it in our world and in your personal life. You know what I really want? I don't want you to just listen to me teach the Bible. I want you to take that and I want you to take it home. And I want you to let it distill in your spirit. I want you to meditate on it in your mind. I want you to dig into the word. I want you to realize that the Lord wants to speak to you. And that's what teaching is about. It's to give you the tools to receive from the Lord, to study his word, to navigate through your life. Okay, That's what I'm trying to do with you and for you. That's my goal. That's my job. I'm a pastor teacher. right? I'm an enabler, but in a good way. Right? There's the bad kind of enabler that enables the addict. There's the good kind of enabler that enables you to do what God has called and created you to do. I'm here to inspire your faith. I'm here to encourage you to study the Word of God. Right? That's what the teaching is about. Verse 7. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 14, 7. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute... <laughs> or the, did you like that? I have no idea why my, boy, my voice did that. <laughs> if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Well, the flute was a favorite instrument among the Greeks and the harp among the Jews. A musical instrument doesn't play itself, right? A musical instrument is not enjoyable or meaningful unless it is played by a skilled musician. The Holy Spirit is the musician. We are the instruments. If I'm simply babbling to imitate others whom I think are speaking in tongues, it's worse than meaningless worship. It's hypocrisy, even mockery, all right? I remember when we used to minister uh, at The Rock on Thursday nights. So what uh, Nick is doing back here with th these teenagers, we used to have a very large group of teenagers uh, at The Rock that we met with on Thursday nights. And... Um, there was an old piano down in the 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 area where they where they ate, kind of like like kind of like there's a there's a kitchen and then this dining area, 
all right, where all the kids ate. And Rachel would always cook food for them, and Craig uh, would teach them and preach to them. And I'm telling you what, those kids would, uh, they would bang on that piano. None of them knew how to play it. It was horrible. We had to just continually say, please stop. Please, because it's, it's just awful. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Is somebody that just does not know how to play an instrument and then just banging away at it. Uh, mm, now, you know, eventually, if you practice, you learn, you get better and so forth. But that's kind of what we're referring to here, right? Um, the, the instrument needs to be properly played and it needs to produce a melody. And then you enjoy it, right? Verse 8, he continues, And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound... Who will get ready for battle? So the call to battle for the Jew was the shofar or the ram's horn. For the Roman, it was the trumpet or bugle. These instruments were used to signal the command to go into battle. So they had battle flags, right, that you could see be in a high place. And the, those flags represented different things. And then they had the, you know, the, the bugle or the, the shofar that would be blown in a specific way and that would signal it. But, you know, they didn't have headsets. You know, they didn't text each other. All right, time to go, guys. You know, they didn't, they, they weren't, you know, doing wireless communication. That's how you did it. You're, and these, they had to be loud, but it had to be played in a certain way. If it gives an indistinct sound, well, they don't know, what does that mean? They're not playing it right. They didn't learn that, okay? So that's the example here. Tongues are not just haphazard babbling. It's God speaking to and through someone in an act of worship and prayer, okay? And that's why it's really not something that we're going to be doing loudly in a public space. Verse 9, So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. So there are two disorders that may cause what appears to be senseless babbling. One is called aphasia which is the loss of ability to understand or express speech and appropriately and sadly at the same time today Bruce Willis retired from acting because he has aphasia so this typically comes from some kind of brain damage but he's experiencing aphasia um, the other is apraxia which is the inability to perform purposeful actions so that would be an actual, uh, there's, a, there's a disconnect between the, the, the speaking and the thinking, right? That's aphasia. But uh, an inability to make my body do what I want it to do, right? That's focused on the actions. That's apraxia. And I'm assuming that that could uh, affect the, uh, uh, the tongue, the, the lips, and so forth, and therefore would result in babbling. Apart from proper interpretation, even genuine tongues are little more than speaking into the air when it concerns those around the tongue speaker. Verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So that's just, that's very straightforward. Genuine tongues do have a meaning just as any language does. The meaning is known by God. However, apart from knowledge and understanding of a language, the speaker is foreign to me. We're alienated from one another. This alienation may have been happening in Corinth between those with the gift of tongues and those without. And certainly that happens today. In churches where, quote-unquote, praying in the spirit or speaking in tongues is considered necessary 
those who do not do so or will not may feel like outsiders. They may feel like the Lord's leaving them out. The Lord doesn't want to gift them, that they're second-class citizens in the kingdom and so forth. Um, visitors to a meeting were loudly speaking in tongues or some pray, but for private prayer. There are a few exceptions, but those likely occur when the gift is operating as a sign, right? Sign points to something else. In this case, excuse me, points to the presence of the Spirit. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. It was a sign. Tongues of fire distributed, separated and distributed onto the heads of the 120 that were in the upper room, large upper room, right? And they began speaking in tongues. Now, some interpreters will say they were just all given these various languages that are discussed in Acts chapter 2. That all of these Elamites, Medes, and all, all these different people from all over the world heard the 120 disciples speaking in their own language. So, if everybody in this room started speaking in a different language what would that sound like cacophony confusion right i might be able to pick out my language i might not here's what i think happened i think that this gift of tongues was one unknown language right communication between these disciples and the Lord, or it could be many. <clears throat> but there were two miracles. They were speaking in tongues, and those who were believers received the gift of interpretation. And they heard from the Holy Spirit what that meant, right? Gift of tongues, gift of interpretation. And in that case, tongues were a sign so i'm not saying that that couldn't happen in a congregation that couldn't happen again but again it's never going to be senseless babbling that that's how an unbeliever would hear it it's going to be this language call it a heavenly language call it a prayer language but it's a sign and he'll talk more about that uh, later in the chapter and we'll get to that next week because i intend to conclude this chapter next week um one way or the other but uh, the gift of interpretation has to be present as well. Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So rather than striving to be spiritual, which is actually selfish, by the way, being genuinely spiritual will result in the Holy Spirit edifying other believers through you. There's no selfish ambition ev evident there. That's only humble service. Um, we need the supernatural filling and anointing of the Holy Spirit to build up God's people. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. That's what Psalm 127.1 says. So uh, as a pastor, I've, I've sensed vanity in all of that. I do try to build you up apart from, uh, if I try to build you up apart from the ordering and anointing of the Holy Spirit, then I'm just, I'm speaking into the air, all right? Um, Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. So um, 
Then he says, if I pray in a tongue, my mind prays, excuse me, my spirit prays. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Do you understand? This is not a language you know, right? So my mind is not engaged. My spirit is engaged. So a human person has a spirit and a mind, and these are not the same. They're not identical. My mind reasons and communicates with the outer world using a known language. My spirit communicates with God, communes with God even, and that may involve the gift or the manifestation of tongues. May, not necessarily. The spirit of a human being cannot act in the world on its own. It is always and inextricably joined to a body. That's why you have a mind, but you have a brain. Okay? I have a spirit, but that spirit is in this body, inhabiting this body. Um, I try to help us understand how this fits together, this inextricable connection between uh, spirit and body by looking at the Genesis account of creation. Genesis 2.7 says, And God formed man from the dust of the ground, of the dust of the earth, and breathed into his nostrils the, bre the breath of life, and man became a living being. So when we go back, he creates the body using whatever process he chose to, to create the body, and then he inspirits the man. Okay, when it says he breathed into the man, the same word in Hebrew can mean spirit. He inspirits the man, and that's what makes the man a soul, a human being, a human soul. That's what we have that the animals do not have. The animals have a rudimentary soul. What they don't have is a spirit. That's what makes you a creation in the image of God. You have a spirit, and that spirit gives you the ability to rise above the demands of the, of the body, to rise above uh, being caused or forced to do things by the world and by the flesh. That's why I need to be spiritual, uh, as in indwelled, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, motivated by the Holy Spirit, so that I can escape temptation, so that can I, I can escape from sin, right? He says, I'll pray with my spirit and with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So when we pray, we may pray with groans too deep for words, and we can also pray with our words. Both may even happen at the same time. Prayer should engage the whole person. Worship is a, it's a, all of me, right? Worship is not just sitting in church and singing a couple of songs or listening to other people sing songs or listening to a preacher preach. I need to engage in that. Uh, worship should be you praying all the time. Like when I'm listening to a worship song, you know, and it moves me, I, I'm talking to the Lord about it. I'm, I'm amening that, right? I, I like those churches where they, they, they're all about that amen, okay? I, I've preached in a few churches like that in the past, and it's, it's actually, because I'm not used to it, it's actually kind of distracting. <laughs> you, you get, no, oh, oh, it's, oh, it's a, you know. But it's a lot more like a conversation. But my hope is, by saying amen, they're not just talking back to the preacher. That's them agreeing, right, and entering into that. So that should be happening all the time. If I'm a believer, I, I pray. That's what I do. 
that's going to be natural to me. Lack of prayer equals lack of faith or lack of trust. They're the same thing. Prayer needs to be rational sometimes, and at other times, words and reason cannot communicate what is in the heart or the spirit. That is when the gift of tongues can help. Paul prayed both ways, and so should we. Even if you don't have the gift of tongues, there are many things that you can do to worship and pray. Think about this. You can sing. You say, well, I don't sing that well. You're alone. <laughs> All right? Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. That's what you do. Um, you can quietly breathe in and out while in his presence. You know, it's been pointed out that just the, the name of God, Yahweh, is Yahweh. He's a breathing out. Jesus' name, Yeshua. Yeshua. Now, you're not, you're not engaging in mindless repetition if this is an act of worship. You know, fundamental to your existence is breathing. Sometimes you just need to stop and be quiet. Breathe in and breathe out. Take in the Spirit and breathe out the anxiety, right? So when we work out in karate, we do our jumping jacks, um, you know, we do something that's strenuous and, and everybody's breathing real heavy, then we have an exercise that we do. We bring our hands up, breathe in through the nose, down and out through the mouth. And even in just that little exercise that I did just now in demonstration, I am more calm than I was. This is what you, you can do this in worship. That's, you know, it's, it's, everything's not all the same, right? Um, you can cry, you can laugh, you can lay yourself prostrate before the Lord and be quiet and still. You can say his name again and again, or say that you love him, or make a melody, or sing it or hum it, make a, you know, a, a new hymn. Uh, whatever it is that you can do, then you can, if you play an instrument, you can play the instrument unto the Lord, right? We really need to enter into worship on a deeper, deeper level, friends. It's, it, it's important. We must learn to worship in spirit and in truth, moved by the Holy Spirit and moved by the written word of God. Our worship should be internal and external, subjective and objective, both rational and emotional, both giving and receiving, active and passive, doing and resting. We must be more than clever animals. We're spiritual beings at the core. We're made in the image of God. We are children of our Father. Enter into the Holy of Holies. Worship and pray. Amen? That's a good place to stop. I wanted to get a little further, but that means we're going to have to go really fast next week. Or that just means I won't be able to make comments on every single thing. But hopefully that left you with something encouraging. God wants to have a real relationship with you all the time. And that happens spirit to spirit. So let your spirit engage with him and do some things that maybe you haven't done before. If you've never raised your hands, try that. If you've never bowed down and, and knelt, try that. If you've never gotten down on your face, try that. There's different things ways to to worship and to pray if you normally just pray in your mind find somewhere that you can go 
We can get out of the way of the distractions and pray out loud. You know one of the greatest places to pray? In your car. Just get in your car, right? Go drive somewhere where there's not, you know, people staring at you, you're not worried, and then just open up and pray. I remember uh, as a new believer, um, I committed my life to Christ, as you all know, on Easter Sunday. And it was shortly after my 16th birthday that year. All right. So it was a lot like this year. The 11th is my birthday. Easter was early that year. It was on the 26th. So I had my driver's license. I mean, I got my driver's license as soon as I turned 16. I was ready to get going. Okay. And so I got to drive, you know, the, the family pickup truck to church. And uh, very shortly after that, because um, I committed my life to Christ when I knew I could make it to church, because I knew that, uh, you know, my family, they're not a church going family. So it would be, it would not be consistent. I would not be able to go to church all the time. But once I got my driver's license, then I was able to drive myself to church. Very shortly after that, I got a job. Um, or actually, I'd already gotten a job. I, I bought a car. I started driving myself to church. But I remember in those early days, the first time that I ever prayed out loud for any length of time, and maybe this sounds weird, you know, if you've been raised in church and you prayed out loud a lot when you were younger, I didn't. I had the, these set prayers that I prayed. I mean, I, my mom thank, thankfully taught me to, you know, to pray before my food, okay? God is great, God is good, and now we thank Him for our food, amen. So that's, you know, that's not really a personal prayer. It's, it's a good prayer to teach kids. And she taught me, my mom taught me to, to pray this prayer before I went to bed. Kneel beside your bed, fold your hands. Say, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And should I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And I would do that. And then I might say a few other things after that. And then get up in bed and go to sleep. But the first time I ever had a long conversation with God, out loud, was driving my car. And I felt like my car had turned into a spaceship. I was floating. I mean, I just had that just sense of just, wow, this is amazing, right? Because these were, these were my words, and it was a real conversation that I was having with God. And so I encourage you to do that. This is really a relationship, and you need to practice that relationship. Those of you that are in relationships, could be your kids, can be your grandkids, can be a spouse, it can be, you know, brothers and sisters, you have to practice those relationships. You have to communicate. You have to talk to each other, not just text each other, right? Talk to each other. Communication is essential. It's no different with God. God is God, but he's a person. And so we need to practice that spirit-to-spirit -spirit communion with him. Amen? All right. God bless you guys. Appreciate you.